Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. I'm not your friend, buddy. I'm not your buddy, guy. <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, 93 FM WLRI in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And, of course, coast-to-coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. Streaming on the Progressive Voices Channel, on Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, other fine affiliates in parts unknown, and Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your broadcast. Thank you for taking a break from watching the Star Wars trailer to join us uh, this afternoon, this evening, whenever we are lucky enough to have you here. A, a big show ahead for you today because, frankly, it's a big day. Uh, so much uh, has happened over the past 24 hours or more that, uh, well, all most of it is summed up, I think, in our Green News report, uh, which we'll, uh, we'll have for you later with Desi Doyen, who will be joining us then, as she does now. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hey, I'm not your buddy, guy. I know, I'm not your friend, buddy. <laughs> um, this is... Uh, A uh, South Park reference for all those people who may not know that. Yeah, well, if they didn't know it, then the hell with them. I wasn't going <laughs> to tell them, but you already did. Uh, we have in the Green News Report a, uh, a... We're calling it our Sea Change Edition, because, frankly, everything that we cover in today's Green News Report is kind of huge and uh, a huge sea change from what has come prior. And uh, surprisingly, pretty much all of it, encouragingly, is actually good news. I'm amazed, uh, Des. You never bring us good news well, on the Green News Report. True. And so I really, bring good news all the time. And yes, this is an exceptionally action-packed good news Green News Report. So stay tuned for that. One of the things that we're going to talk about uh, on the Green News Report is, uh, is what happened in Canada. On Monday night, huge news, a huge election, uh, tossing out the conservative prime minister who's uh, served for 10 years. We'll get to all of that in a moment. Uh, speaking of conservatives, Democratic presidential candidate Jim Webb running as an independent, uh, I'm sorry, running as a Democrat, a Republican, previously now a Democrat. There, got it sorted out. He's dropping out of the race. He may be running as an independent. We'll talk a little bit about that uh, ahead. You can stay tuned for that. And uh, more on the amazing and, frankly, amazingly embarrassing voter suppression that is being carried out by the Secretary of State of Kansas, who's doing it right out in the light of day and, uh, for now at least, seemingly getting away with it. But first, before all of that, big 
Big news out of uh, out of Canada on Monday night. Uh, now, for those of you in the U.S. unfamiliar, Canada is that section uh, d- of the map that is just above the U.S. It uh, used to be all covered in uh, white snow, not so much anymore. But but that's what Canada is. In case you uh, U.S. listeners are unfamiliar with it, uh, they had a big election last night. A big sea change, frankly, of an election. Now, unlike U.S. elections, Canada's Canada's are not held on a regular two- or four-year basis like ours, but rather, according to uh, Canada's Constitution Act of 1867, once elected, Parliament can stay in office barring an event triggering an election for as many as five years. Now, three men were on the ballot for prime minister on Monday. Uh, Incumbent Stephen Harper of the Conservative Party. He has served about uh, 10 years at this point. Justin Trudeau, son of the legendary Canadian prime minister Pierre Trudeau, who served for for roughly 16 years. Uh, Justin Trudeau of the Liberal Party and Tom Mulcair of the New Democratic Party, which, as I understand it, is more liberal than the Liberal Party. Uh, The campaign season for Monday's uh, uh, election, uh, 2015 election, was, from beginning to end, just 11 weeks long. Now, to us in the U.S., that seems either insanely brief or wonderfully so. Uh, But in Canada, it was the longest election season in modern history, and it came at a cost to the Canadian government, which funds elections publicly, imagine that, of approximately... $128 $128 million Canadian dollars, or $98.5 million U.S. dollars for the entire election. Now, as I said, Stephen Harper had been in power for some 10 years, and he led the country far to the right over the, uh, over the past decade. Trudeau's Liberal Party victory may mean a new day for our neighbors to the north on all matter of things. But in particular, to those of us following the uh, Keystone XL pipeline fight and Canada's growing reliance on petrodollars generated from dirty tar sands oil projects in Alberta, etc., this all may mean a new day for Canada's energy outlook. Here to explain all of this to us is a born and raised Canadian now living in D.C., I don't know how he got past the uh, the border fence. Have we built that border fence yet? Anyway, uh, Alex Dukas is a senior campaigner at Oil Change International. His work focuses on ending international subsidies and public finance for fossil fuels and shifting public resources toward building a clean energy future, including access to clean energy for all. Imagine that. Alex Dukas, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, all right, great to have you here. And uh, let's let's presume uh, for the moment that you're talking to someone who is who's really interested in politics and elections and energy, but who lives in the U.S. and therefore has no idea what takes place anywhere else in the world on anything. Um, with that in mind, let me start by uh, also mentioning I'm a South Park fan, so I just want to confirm your mouth isn't actually unhinged and flop around uh, like they show on, on that uh, TV show, correct? Uh, only on weekends. I see. Thank you, buddy. All right. Uh, <laughs> with all of that, uh, give me a quick overview on, uh, on, on the issues and, and controversies in this campaign. And then I want to sort of narrow the focus to your specialty, uh, energy. But I, I want to start with the, uh, 
was sort of the broader picture because some of these controversies in these camp in the, your campaign uh, sounded quite a lot like the U.S. To be frank, so I apologize in advance for that. Well, uh, I mean, blame Canada is another South Park reference, but I think in this mm-hmm. case we can blame the United States a little bit for uh, some of the controversies that we had to. Uh, bear with during this, uh, as you said, excruciatingly long for Canadians' 11-week election <laughs> campaign. Right. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, where where the, the, the Stephen Harper's Conservative Party tore a page out of the GOP uh, playbook uh, was was toward the end of the campaign, uh, really making uh, the niqab, uh, which is a, a Muslim uh, mm-hmm. covering head covering, uh, mm-hmm. a sort of a central issue of his campaign about ensuring that. Uh, Canadians couldn't take the citizenship oath uh, with uh, where, if they were wearing the niqab and promising to try and make changes to that, um, uh, trying to uh, basically whip up uh, the Canadian electorate into an, an, an xenophobic fervor, which didn't work out very well for him, thankfully. So it, w- it wasn't a very effective approach, but it certainly seemed to be inspired by uh, by some of the stuff that we, we hear mm-hmm. uh, south of the border. Yes. Um, the other things uh, that were really major controversies in the campaign, you know, earlier on there was uh, expense controversy from one of uh, the conservative senators appointed by Stephen Harper. Uh, it's not a, not a huge amount of money, but uh, a scandal that he was, uh, you know, uh, claiming incorrectly hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in expenses. Uh, and so, you know, hence the niqab issue, helping to distract from that scandal among many others. Uh, you know, the, the economy was uh, stagnating uh, as a result of uh, plunging oil prices, which I think is something we should return to in this conversation, and I hope we will. We will. Uh, there was a very brief, probably too brief, conversation around the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is uh, supported strongly by, uh, by Mr. Harper, who's uh, negotiating it. Uh, the uh, New Democratic Party leader, uh, Thomas Mulcair, uh, you said they're they're sort of the the, the social democrats in Canada, um, left of the Liberal Party, which is more centrist, uh, did not support uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, and uh, you know there's sort of I would say uh, somewhat qualified support from the Liberal Party of Canada, um, but it, it, you know it, substance, substantive issues like that unfortunately got sidelined uh, for much of the election campaign by conversations about the niqab and uh, and uh, those types of things. But going into this election, uh, it, it looked to be uh, pretty tight. And the thought was, well, even if the liberals win, they won't li- uh, win with a majority. Liberal Party ended up uh, winning a huge majority, did they not? They did. It's interesting uh, because the New Democratic Party actually, for the first time in uh, the history of Canada, uh, formed the official opposition. Uh, they were sort of the second party mm-hmm. uh, during the last election. Uh, and they were—they they really had uh, a, a rough time this time around. They lost a lot of seats, and the the, the uh, Liberal Party gained uh, a ton of seats. And uh, you know, a lot of people are attributing that in part to people getting out to say, you know, who toward the end of the campaign has the best shot of just getting rid of Stephen Harper because Canadians were really tired uh, of his brand of leadership. So, uh, so a lot of a lot of people saw things going one way, and they thought they'd jump on the on 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 the on the the the, the bandwagon to to do whatever they could to get rid of Harper. So it wasn't so much. Uh, NDP, uh, New Democratic Party, falling out of favor as it as it was the the nation sort of rallying around uh, which party is going to be able to win uh, with the majority government. Yeah, I think I think it was really uh, more of a referendum mm-hmm. on uh, Stephen Harper's leadership than it was sort of a vote of confidence for either the Liberal Party or the New Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, 
but you know, a lot of Canadians were just, it's been almost a decade of Stephen Harper being in power in, in some form or another in Canada. So it seems like Canadians, given the mandate that they gave to the Liberal Party, uh, were ready for a change. And, and does that explain the sort of wild swing? We saw the, uh, the Liberal Party, uh, which has been so strong in Canada for so long, uh, slipped out of favor. It became the third uh, party, the third largest party in, I think, 2013. And now two years later, it emerges to take control of the government. Uh, how, how did they pull that off? Was it a change in, in, what, in, in their policies, in the leadership of Justin Trudeau? Or, as you say, just everyone is sick and tired of the Conservative Party and Stephen Harper? Yeah, it's, it's, it's easy to oversimplify, um, so I, I'll try not to. But I think, I think it's a, a confluence of all of those factors. Mm-hmm. But I do think the main thing really was, was uh, that Canadians are ready to just have, have somebody else in charge. They were a little bit embarrassed uh, by Stephen Harper's leadership, and they saw what was happening to Canada's stature in the world. Uh, and, and it's not the kind of Canada that they wanted to, to, to see. So I think Canadians voted for something they felt would give them a good shot at, uh, at, at, at rebuilding, mm-hmm. uh, rebuilding the social fabric in Canada and, uh, and, and really having uh, some leadership that would help Canadians uh, feel proud of, of Canada returning to what it was uh, prior to the Harper decade. Well, I must say I'm very happy to see what happened last night. And, and, and you're right. I think they were right to be embarrassed because, uh, you know, I've been making a whole lot of, you know, we, we do a, a Green News Report show uh, uh, twice a week, uh, nationally syndicated, and over the past several years, we've been making fun of Canada a whole lot. Uh, th- surprisingly, uh, thanks to Stephen Harper and his policies. Uh, before we get into some of those, uh, to, to the uh, to the role of energy and all in all of this and where it might go, uh, you had mentioned that uh, you're actually in uh, Washington, D.C., and there was uh, some controversy this year for the first time about uh, folks like you being able to vote outside of the U.S. Is this another uh, another page that the Conservative Party in Canada has uh, taken from U.S. elections? Yeah, there were a couple of things that happened uh, that, that, you know, it looked like the Conservatives in Canada were learning lessons uh, around voter disenfranchisement from uh, GOP uh, uh politicians you're welcome south yes. of the border so thanks for that you're welcome um <laughs> and i you know uh i, I it's it's it there was a the fair elections act was passed um by the by the government uh led by the conservatives um prior to the election a lot of people took to calling it the unfair elections act i was gonna say uh, as soon as i hear the conservative pass party passed something called the fair elections act i'm already wondering how unfair <laughs> it is so, yeah they yeah. also changed the name of the ministry of defense to ministry of peace well no that didn't happen but oh, uh, but but yeah. the fair elections act was really the unfair elections act from from my perspective as well i think a lot of uh, a lot of commentators saw the efforts to increase voter ID requirements, et cetera, as, mm. as being aimed at disenfranchising a number of voters that may not be the most supportive uh, cohort uh, of the Conservative Party. And and the bill also made it uh, more difficult for folks outside of the U.S. to be able to vote uh, absentee? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, a, outside of Canada. Th- there was legislation that, um, that uh, would preclude uh, Canadian uh, citizens who'd been residing outside of Canada for more than five years from voting. Uh, and that took effect uh, in time for the election, so the first time that Canadians uh, who are citizens of Canada who've been outside of, living outside of Canada for more than five years um, were not able to vote. Um, and, and, and that's something that's yet to be tested at the highest levels uh-huh. of the judiciary in Canada, so it may be overturned by uh, the time the next election rolls around, because in our Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is a foundational document in Canada, uh, in terms of governance, uh, it guarantees the right to vote for every Canadian citizen. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the next several years. And it was seen as a as an attempt to suppress the vote, essentially, uh, by pulled off by the Conservative Party. 
Uh, I think I think many people viewed it that way. Absolutely. Uh, all right. So uh, to your specialty and and my particular interest here, what role did energy and the tar sands oil? Uh, the Harper government's reliance on a fossil fuel uh, economy, et cetera, play in this election, as you see it? Yeah, well, Stephen Harper really ran on his economic record uh, in this election. Uh, he really made the entire election, from, from his perspective, he tried to frame it around the economy. And can you trust the liberals? Can you trust the New Democrats? Can you trust the Green Party? Can you trust these people with the economy? And you need a steady hand on the tiller. Unfortunately for him, uh, his record doesn't really back up the rhetoric uh, because, you know, Canada's economy shrunk in the first two quarters of 2015, uh, mm-hmm. heading into the election, uh, which made, made it uh, slide into a technical recession, uh, you know, partly as a result of the knock-on effects of a low oil price environment, uh, because Canada's a significant producer of oil and gas, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that speaks to the fact, the fact that Canada's sort of sliding back into recession now, in contrast to a lot of other um, G7 economies, is partly a result of the knock-on effects of that low oil price. Uh, you know, his nearly single-minded promotion of Canada's oil and gas industry at the expense of other sectors uh, certainly has contributed to the current economic malaise uh, that Canada finds itself in the middle of. Uh, because with oil and gas and commodities like them, you can always expect there to be a boom and bust cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just don't necessarily know when the boom's going to come and when the bust is going to come. And, uh, you know, instead of betting on a future, uh, uh, the future by investing in clean energy, Harper really bet the farm on oil and gas in his policy approach, and, and he lost that bet. Uh, and unfortunately, that bad bet is now hurting a lot of Canadians. So you know, hopefully with a new government uh, in power, uh, we'll start to see that turn around a little bit. We'll start to see recognition of the value of economic diversification and a recognition that you know, oil and gas is not the future for Canada, uh, but that clean energy is really uh, a huge opportunity for Canadians and one that the government can help uh, help realize uh, to the benefit of all Canadians. Uh, Alex Zoukas, you you. Re- Reference that boom and bust cycle uh, for oil and oil prices. Uh, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley, who's a member of NDP, New Democratic Party, uh, had already signaled, we covered this on Green News Report some weeks ago, uh, that she believed that the nation needed to move away from reliance on fossil fuels. That was no small thing, it seemed at the time, for a premier in Alberta, home of the dirty tar sands oil fields, uh, not to mention an historically very conservative uh, province, as I understand it. Um, should her, her statements on that issue uh, some weeks ago have given us some idea where Canada was headed uh, as a whole. I, I thought it was an extraordinary statement at the time when she said, hey, we, we can't rely on, uh, on fossil fuels. We need to, uh, to move to a, a different type of economy. That seemed kind of huge at the time. Yeah, and I think I think her statement was significant. Um, I do think the language she used was that you know we, we needed to phase out fossil fuels within the next century, uh, which is not a terribly ambitious timeline uh, okay. given the, the 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 climate crisis that we're facing. Uh, and actually, Stephen Harper had already agreed to G seven language, although he did it by all accounts kicking and screaming mm-hmm. uh, to decarbonize uh, the global economy by the end of the century. Uh, so I don't know that we should be lauding. Uh, uh, Premier Notley too much for that, although I do think it's a good sign, especially coming from a Premier of Alberta. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think there's a long way to go. And I think, uh, you know, Canadians and Albertans uh, still have uh, a long way to go with Premier Notley, uh, and and uh, and they can they can push her to offer more than that. But it is it's a good sign. It's a good start, and uh, and it shows that things are moving forward. What does all of this mean now then for uh, going forward for the tar, tar sands uh, and for climate policy itself in in Canada? And then we can get to the most important thing: 
how all of this affects us down here in the U.S. But first, for Canada, how does it affect, uh, directly affect what we what we might expect from their energy policy and from their tar sands uh, heavy fossil fuel policy? Right, and I think we will touch on some things that may directly affect the U.S. here, uh, because one mm-hmm. of the big questions with the new leadership, with, with Pierre Trudeau, the Liberal Party, his prime minister, is... Uh, you know, what are we likely to see in terms of their approach toward Canada's energy sector, towards the tar sands, towards climate policy, and towards pipelines? Um, and what, what the official position uh, ahead of the election was uh, of, of, of uh, Trudeau's Liberal Party was that they opposed the Enbridge Northern Gateway Pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had a sort of an unclear uh, position on the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. And sorry for those listeners who aren't familiar with all of these pipelines. They're different mm-hmm. uh, tar sands-related pipelines across Canada. Right, all over uh, the place, going north, south, east, west. Uh, exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and then a big web of pipelines all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, prospective pipelines, I should say. I should right. emphasize the perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, so so they, they oppose Enbridge Northern Gateway, unclear about the Kinder Morgan Pipeline. Uh, they support uh, more or less the Energy East uh, pipeline, and, and importantly, they also have voiced support for the Keystone XL pipeline. That's the one that listeners, I think, are most likely to be familiar with. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, uh, I know you said we'll get to the U.S. side of this. Um, Go ahead. Be, cross the would, board. It would, be, it would be pretty interesting uh, for the Obama administration uh, to reject Keystone XL now that the Canadian election has been decided. Uh, it's still, you know, that decision and that conversation is still something that's really associated with Stephen Harper's government, mm-hmm. and I don't think it would uh, it would strain relations with a new government uh, if if that decision were to be made soon. But uh, but the window of opportunity is closing, so I think I think uh, you know it's an interesting opportunity for the Obama administration to say Harper's out, Keystone XL is out. Uh, but but we'll have to wait and see. So uh, so you're suggesting you're suggesting that this election now makes it easier for the Obama administration to to say no at this point. Oh, I think so. I think I think that you know, th- you know, I, I don't know how much, uh, to what degree, the the fact that there was an election underway in Canada influenced their decision on 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 whether to make a statement or not, mm-hmm. a, a, a determination or not on Keystone XL. But I think now is an opportunity for them to come out and say, you know what, Stephen Harper's gone. This is his legacy, and and we're rejecting it. And so. Uh, and it, it, not going to tarnish relations with uh, with the new uh, the new prime minister. And so, when Trudeau and the Liberals came out in support of uh, Keystone XL pipeline, as I understand it, they said they were in favor of it, but that it should not be a a point of contention between the two between the two countries. So we we can expect that if it is rejected by Obama, we won't see a lot of uh, yelling and screaming, at least from the from the Liberal uh, government up there. I, exactly. I think the new Liberal government and, and uh, Trudeau are, are going to take, uh, Justin Trudeau is going to take no for an answer on Keystone XL. They realize that they have to work together with the U.S., and mm-hmm. they, they do realize that we've been laboring under uh, a, you know, a decade of, of really terrible, reprehensible climate and energy policy in Canada, so we're going to have to start changing the way we do things. Trudeau's uh, campaign co-chair was forced to step down just last week after it was revealed that he had been advising his lobbying uh, uh, clients in the oil industry, specifically TransCanada, the owner of the uh, KXL uh, pipeline, uh, he had been sending them email with advice in the midst of this campaign. And the emergence of the emails from this guy uh, to TransCanada, that was a revelation, I guess. But his ties to the oil industry were well known, certainly by the party, certainly by Justin Trudeau, as I understand it. Uh, Does that tell us that... uh, Perhaps liberals and Justin Trudeau and uh, the energy industry, TransCanada, Big Oil, etc., are a lot uh, are, are more closely allied than uh, than people might think, or that environmentalists might like to hear. 
Yeah, well, I definitely think uh, that's an excellent demonstration uh, of the fact that Canadians who care about climate change are going to have to keep pushing this government uh, now that it's been elected, uh, because it's not an open and shut question for them about, you know, the fact that we need to seriously address climate change and that we need to get serious about the tar sands and, uh, and sort of extreme forms of dirty energy in Canada, uh, because we didn't even have any kind of a clear commitment or clear target on emissions from the Liberal Party uh, prior to the election. Uh, they, were, they were the only major party not to issue uh, some kind of clear and unambiguous target uh, for emissions. And so coming into Paris, uh, the, the UN climate negotiations this December, uh, where a big agreement is expected, uh, it's going to be really important for them to provide clarity on that. And as you say, uh, the, the party does seem a bit conflicted. So Canadians are going to have to push the Liberal Party. Um, and I think it's really interesting, uh, just mentioned for the listeners, that there is, um, you know, we, we do do direct action in Canada as well. Uh, and there is, uh, there is, from November 5th to 8th, something called climate welcome mm-hmm. uh, that's aimed at giving the Prime Minister a, a proper welcome, a series of uh, serious but gentle civil disobedience actions is how it's described, which is a very Canadian way to describe something like this, uh, to welcome Justin Trudeau to office and call on him to get to work on real climate action. So that's climatewelcome.ca for those who are interested. I okay. uh, hope you don't mind me plugging that. No, um, not but at it's, all. It's, uh, I, think, I think we'll see what happens, and I think... Uh, I think it is, as you say, it's, it's, uh, there's still an open question about how this government's going to be on the climate issue, and uh, Canadians have a fantastic opportunity early on in the game to, to really uh, push them. And I, and I want to ask you just a little bit more about uh, Paris and that upcoming summit uh, in a moment, uh, I, but I've got a couple of other questions that I want to hit. Uh, you're, you're tremendously clarifying on this, uh, Alex Dukas. Thank you very much. Speaking with Alex Dukas of Oil Change International. Um, I, I, I want to make sure that we hit. Uh, I, I know that the uh, the First Nations, uh, the indigenous uh, tribes uh, in Canada, uh, played a huge role in this fight against all of these this uh, web of pipelines uh, you you mentioned. And, and I think they need some uh, some recognition here for that uh, in, in this fight um, against what the Harper government had been trying to to see built. Uh, can can you tell us about the role that they played and? Uh, the important role they played in actually blocking, stopping, delaying so many of these pipelines. Yeah, well, certainly through direct action, uh, through uh, court challenges, uh, through advocacy efforts, uh, First Nations in Canada have really been at the forefront of resistance Mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to the tar sands and when it comes to uh, dirty energy projects that are going to exacerbate climate change and that are really, you know, destroying and hurting First Nations communities. Uh, So they deserve an enormous deal of credit uh, for helping to delay some of the destructive um, energy projects uh, that uh, were were developing under Stephen Harper's watch in Canada. And basically, they were able to say, unlike uh, what has happened here in the U.S., they were able to say, no, these are our lands. We retain this property, these property rights, and we do not want this pipeline coming through our lands and, and turning down the billions of dollars, I guess, that, that might have come with it. Is that what they were doing? Yeah, absolutely. There are, there are First Nations who've you know, demonstrated an incredible amount of integrity uh, in, in turning down uh, significant um, offers of, of money. Uh, from fossil fuel companies uh, and refusing to cede their lands mm-hmm. to fossil fuel development. Uh, and I think one thing that's important to note, though, is you know there still are a lot of cases where uh, there is unceded land that's not under treaty in Canada um, that uh, that that you know where th- there are still questions around uh, land tenure 
and uh, and First Nations control of those lands, uh, and and so it's it's you know it's certainly um, e- even in those cases where it's it's it, there's there's not as clear uh, sort of First Nations uh, control of those mm-hmm. lands, they've 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 resisted and, and by and large, and I'm not trying to be essentialist. There there are obviously a, a variety of views across different First Nations in Canada, uh, but but they have as I said been really at the forefront of resistance in a lot of the dirtiest energy projects, which is which is really incredible. Um, they've they've really helped protect not only First Nations land but uh, but other Canadians from a lot of these projects. And one thing I just want to mention about the new government, um, uh, Trudeau has also said, uh, the new prime minister, that governments offer permits, this is a quote, governments offer permits, but only communities can grant permission. Uh, and so I think it'll be important to see whether he honors that statement, mm. and it's especially pertinent uh, when it comes to uh, having a conversation, a nation-to-nation conversation uh, between the Canadian government and First Nations on energy policy and planning. Uh, In the minute or two we have left, uh, I'm sure many in the environmental uh, movement will say this election came not a moment too soon with those final negotiations that you referenced coming up uh, in Paris in in December for a worldwide U.N. climate treaty. Uh, what can the world expect this development? How do, how can the world expect this uh, development to change specifically Canada's commitment or frankly lack thereof under the Harper administration to emissions reductions and, and the fight against climate uh, against climate crisis overall? What was it that Canada was offering before and what now seems realistic that they may be able to uh, to offer as we get to these negotiations this December? Well, and I know you have no crystal ball, but uh, you're just your best sense of this. Yeah, I don't have, and I don't have, as you say, a crystal ball. But I think, I think, you know, I don't know what we'll see in terms of whether there'll be an increase in ambition um, in what, what's called the INDC. Uh, your listeners may be familiar with that, based on previous conversations mm-hmm. about uh, about the climate negotiations and the Paris Agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, Canada's national contribution to this new agreement um, is sort of inadequate in terms of what it should be right. uh, putting forward from a global perspective. But you know, because of the intransigence of the Harper government on climate policy and actually implementing anything to reduce emissions, um, even that target's probably going to be difficult to reach. So I think um, I think we may see. Uh, you know, an increase in ambition in the commitment, but I think what will be really important to see as well is an extraordinarily large increase in the in the uh, sort of planning uh, and, and and sincerity of implementation of of, uh, of emissions reductions in Canada, whatever the target is. Um, I think the other significant thing that's really interesting, considering that one of the first major international forum forums that uh, Pierre Trudeau, the new prime minister, is going to be attending, is going to be the G20 meeting. Uh, the Leader Summit, uh, mm-hmm. which is coming up in mid-November just before the Paris negotiations, mm-hmm. is that uh, part of their platform was a, a pledge to phase out fossil fuel subsidies, uh, right. which has linkages to the climate conversation uh, because subsidies drive greenhouse gas emissions, uh, and they drive climate change, and they're a huge waste of public money. So it'll be really interesting to see um, you know, whether and on what timeline uh, the new prime minister follows through on that promise as well. This is all going to be really interesting. I mean, it really feels like this is a new day. I guess I hope it's a better day, but it really seems like a new day. Uh, Alex, uh, do you guys have the same issues with uh, climate uh, denialists up there in Canada that we do down here? Does that play any part in the electorate? You know what I'm saying? Is do, do have your people fallen for it the way uh, so many uh, have fallen for it down here for that hoax? No, I mean there are there are sitting members of parliament who've cast doubt on uh, you know anthropogenic climate change uh, and the scientific consensus uh, 
they're sort of on the wrong side of the science, but but they're not really taken seriously. Most of them are relegated to the back benches, and uh, Canadians just turfed out the party uh, that uh, that uh, shelters uh, those deniers Good. Uh, or those lukewarmers. So I think I think it is a new day. I think there's going to have to be a lot of pressure still on Canada. Um, to, to really uh, get them to step up uh, toward Paris. Uh, but I think, you know, we, we, we can move away, hopefully, uh, from the, the blame Canada mode into something more constructive uh, now that we have a new government. Yeah, but it's, it's such a good song. I hate to, <laughs> I hate to give it up entirely. Uh, Alex Dukas, uh, so helpful, so clarifying, and I, I believe we are on the verge of a new day, and it's going to be really interesting to watch and see what happens next. Uh, you've, you've really helped uh, us make sense of it, helped me, a guy from the U.S. who has no idea where Canada is until I looked at it uh, on the map just before this interview. So thanks so much for this, uh, for the help, Alex. And uh, let's try to do it again in the future. Uh, Alex Dukas uh, from uh, Oil Change International. Get more information on him and his work at priceofoil.org. Uh, you can also follow them on the Twitters at Price of, uh, Price of Oil. And you can follow Alex on the Twitters at A Dukas. That's A D O U K A S on the Twitters. Oh, and finally, don't forget to stop by climatewelcome.ca and give Justin Trudeau the welcome that he deserves. Alex, great speaking with you, sir. Great. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. You bet. We'll do it again soon. All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back with more Bradcast right after this. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. No, they're not. And we won't stop playing that song just because we like Canada. Again, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks again to Alex Dukas of uh, Oil Change International. He mentioned, uh, by the way, while we were off the air, that uh, while he had pointed us to climatewelcome.ca as a uh, as a Canada action, uh, he said for an international action, uh, a day of action, day of international action on November 14th, we can all look forward to stopfundingfossils.org. Uh, so if you want to check that out, please do. And maybe we'll have uh, Alex back uh, in the mid uh, is November 14th is uh, the big day for Stop Funding Fossils. So maybe we'll have him back to talk about that when we get a little bit closer. He was fantastic. Yeah, that was really informative. I think I've learned more about Canada in just those 30 minutes than I've learned in my entire life. I was going to say, even though he's Canadian, he was still fantastic. <laughs> I rather enjoyed it. All right. Um, okay, back to uh, back to uh, this country and our crappier politics, our way crappier politics. Uh, speaking of crappy, Jim Webb, Jim Webb, uh, the former one-term Virginia senator uh, and t- 
now Democratic nominee or not anymore Democrat Democratic candidate, I should say, and no longer a Democratic candidate for the 2016 nomination because he dropped out of the race. Uh, here were some comments of his this morning as he uh, he said goodbye to all of this. The very nature of our democracy is under siege due to the power structure and the money that finances both political parties. Since Americans don't like the extremes to which both parties have moved in recent years, and quite frankly, neither do I. I fully accept that my views on many issues are not compatible with the power structure and the nominating base of the Democratic Party. That party is filled with millions of dedicated, hardworking Americans but its hierarchy is not comfortable with many of the policies that I have laid forth, and frankly, I'm not that comfortable with many of theirs. For this reason, I'm withdrawing from any consideration of being the Democratic Party's nominee for the presidency. That was, once again, a former one-term Virginia Senator Jim Webb dropping out of the uh, race for the Democratic nomination, Jim Webb, had been a Republican years ago. He turned uh, turned to a Democrat, and he probably would have won in, in Virginia had he decided to continue running, but he decided to quit. Uh, he went on to say, and actually, let, let me just say, uh, he's half right in that statement. Uh, yes, the uh, power and money structure is absolutely obscene in both parties, but talking about both parties moving to the extreme is just ridiculous. It's something a Republican might say, which reminds us uh, why uh, why Jim Webb dropped out, why he found no support in the, in the Democratic race. And it wasn't because of, uh, you know, the, the parties that moved to some extreme. It's because Jim Webb is almost more Republican than he is Democrat. As a matter of fact, uh, he's talking about uh, thinking about a, a third party bid, an independent bid. Uh, I think he should think about getting into the Republican race. I think he would do great. I think he would be really welcome over there. I think there's a lot of people who would like a non-insane candidate. And I think Jim Webb is not insane. They would like a non-insane conservative candidate. And that's what Jim Webb is. He went on to say during his press conference today uh, that he continues to toy with the idea of launching a third-party bid for the White House, according to The Hill, saying that he rec he's receiving, quote, hundreds of letters urging him to do so. I don't know if hundreds is going to uh, get him the job, but he says, uh, quote, I know the histories of independent candidates. They tend to top out around 20 percent historically, but because of the paralysis between our two parties, there is a time an independent candidacy actually could win. I believe he is correct. And by the way, I hope he does run as an independent candidate. I think that would be uh, terrific. I say the more the merrier. Um, the Hill goes on to report that over the last few months since declaring his bid for president, Webb has held barely any campaign events in early primary states. And his poll numbers have hovered in the low single digits. I might suggest that's another reason why he wasn't doing well. He wasn't campaigning very hard. He didn't seem to be trying very hard until he got to the Democratic debate last week and complained that he wasn't getting uh, getting any time uh, on stage. The Hill goes on to report that the man who quit Congress after one term insisted that if he ran as an independent candidate, he would pose a threat 
to the two major parties and their candidates, even boasting he could beat Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in a general election. Well, good luck with that, sir. Uh, Somebody could beat them. I don't know that it's Jim Webb. He said more people in this country call themselves independents than Republicans or Democrats. And I agree, he said. We are more than a label. Americans are disgusted right now that Republicans and Democrats call each other the enemy instead of reaching across the table to work together. That's complete and utter nonsense, uh, Senator. Uh, I mean, if anything, the Democrats have been doing too much reaching across the table for too many years. And, of course, Jim Webb should know that. Uh, he was in uh, in the Senate for many of those years where Democrats gave up everything in trying fruitlessly to work with Republicans. He went on to say Americans don't like the extremes to which both parties have moved, and I don't either. Extremes? Really? Really, Senator? Yes, the Republican Party has moved to an extreme. Uh, but, man, I just hate that false equivalence stuff that, you know, the media does, and apparently guys like Senator Jim Webb. Well, yeah, if he's going to talk about the political paralysis and how much, you know, regular Americans hate that, then it would help him to acknowledge that really it's coming from the Republican Party in Congress. To not acknowledge that is to not acknowledge reality, and I think most Americans understand that, and that's why he didn't get traction. And it's not only to not only acknowledge uh, reality, it also perpetuates the status quo. True. It says, you know, it, it says that, oh, both sides do it. Nobody needs the change. Well, I mean, it says everybody needs the change. But we all know that's not true. Uh, at least, uh, you know, half of the two major parties uh, need to change in a big, big way if they are ever to be relevant again uh, and and make anything but paralysis happen here. And this is not to say that the Democrats are any good, but to imagine falsely, ridiculously, absurdly that the Democratic Party has moved to some kind of an extreme is ridiculous. I would love to see them move to uh, an extreme. And, you know, they're inching somewhat to the left. Uh, but frankly, you know, no thanks to guys like Jim Webb. All right. Um, I got to get to this because I've been I've been trying to get to this for a while. We talked about a lot of the uh, voter suppression that was going on around the country. Again, by Republicans. And I'll be happy to point out Democrats if and when they do it. But it's all Republicans right now that are doing the voter suppression in this country. Oh, and apparently up in Canada, according to Alex uh, Dukas. But in any event, uh, this Chris Kobach, we have talked about him a lot on this show. Unfortunately, we have to continue talking about him because what the uh, Chris Kobach, Secretary of State of Kansas, is doing out there is just remarkable and getting remarkabler over time. Uh, Michael A. Smith, associate professor of political science at Emporia State University, writes in the Salina Journal, question, when is three greater than 37,000? Answer, now, in the Kansas Secretary of State's office, since Chris Kobach has begun using his new power to prosecute voter fraud, Kobach's numbers problem is vast. Recently, he writes... And ostensibly uh, to curb this voting fraud crisis, Kobach approved an administrative rule that will purge about 37,000 suspense voters from the state's voting rolls. These are the voters who did not show proof of American citizenship, such as birth certificate, when they registered, nor with 
uh, nor within 90 days afterwards. So this was a new law that was put in place in, in 2013, requiring only new voters, by the way. If you're in, if you're already in, if you're already registered to vote in, in Kansas, you're in, nothing to worry about. It's only those pesky new voters who now have to show some proof of citizenship, whether whether they own it or not, whether they have to go out and, and you know buy a passport or a birth certificate. Uh, this has resulted in some 37,000 voters who are no longer allowed to vote in state elections. Now, the Supreme Court has decided, yes, they can vote in in federal elections, but not in state elections. But Chris Kobach is going to stop that. He's not even going to let them vote in uh, in in federal elections because what he's claiming is that, well, they have not finished the uh, the process, the state process for registering to vote. And if they haven't done so now within 90 days, he wants to throw them off the rolls. Michael Smith goes on to say that since a policy's benefits should exceed its costs, observers are looking at more than 37,000 documented cases of voter fraud to justify this purge. But Kobach has provided just three. That's right. There are three cases of voter fraud that Chris Kobach, who who ran uh, five years ago now for secretary of state of Kansas on the basis that he was there to stop a voter fraud epidemic from going on. Just three cases uh, he has been able to bring forward recently now that he has been granted prosecutorial power that no other secretary of state in the country has. He has been given this by the uh, Republican legislature in Kansas, by the Republican governor, the power to prosecute. Now, normally, if a secretary of state found evidence of election fraud of any type, whether it's insider election fraud or voter fraud, they would refer that to a prosecutor, uh, either a federal prosecutor uh, or a state uh, district attorney or a county district attorney. Uh, But in this case, he wanted that power for himself because any referrals he made, people looked at it, the prosecutors looked at it and said, no, this is not a case worth uh, bringing a prosecution for. So he says he has found three cases of voter fraud that he has filed charges for. He says that he has evidence of 237 other cases that occurred between 1997 and 2011. Got that? So out of uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of votes cast in the state of Kansas, Chris Kobach has come up with a total of, if all of them are found guilty, 237 cases of illegal voting between 1997 and 2011. Now, mind you, these 37,000 voters that he is hoping to purge uh, have registered just since the 2012 election. So 37,000 voters he wants to get rid of because of 237 cases of voter fraud that he contends are voter fraud, and they're actually not, and I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, At least not the type of voter fraud that he is claiming. So this would come to, uh, what is it, uh, uh, 0.7%. In an absolute worst-case scenario, 0.7% of illegal voting cases Uh, Actually, no, my numbers are wrong. It's even lower than that. Uh, This is just a a, a tiny fraction, a tiny fraction of the number of votes total since 2012 
He goes back to 1997 and says there are 237 cases uh, total of voter fraud that he hopes to bring forward. And guess what? Every single one of those cases is has nothing to do with citizenship, has only to do with double voting. People who voted in Kansas and in another state, allegedly. None of them so far have anything to do with being non-citizens. And that would be the only reason to require proof of citizenship. Now, he says he needs to do this because uh, even though there's not many, uh, 237, but we have very close races in Kansas. We have races that are decided by three or five votes. That's right. You do. And yet you're willing to toss 37,000 people off the rolls for no reason at all. Now, the three cases of uh, of uh, three charges of voter fraud that he, he's brought have been brought against uh, one guy and one couple. Uh, the guy uh, admits that he voted uh, in two separate states, but he thought he was allowed to. He actually has property, he says, in Yuma County, Colorado, as well as Sherman County, Kansas. He said, when I look at a Colorado uh, voter registration form, I'm signing a Colorado form. It doesn't say it's a United States form. It says Colorado form. In Kansas, my reasoning was the same. He said, I know for a fact that I only voted for one president one time. The issues in Kansas that I vote for would have been that uh, would have been for that general election, such as property tax. And if I voted for a senator or representative in the state of Kansas, this would have nothing to do with a senator or a representative in the state of Colorado. Now, he's absolutely wrong on the law. If he voted twice in the same election, that is illegal and he should be held accountable, even if he didn't understand the law. But clearly he did not understand the law. Same thing with this uh, couple who apparently voted in both Kansas and Arkansas, though it's not clear that they actually lived in both places at the same time. The uh, indictments have very few details. It may be that they lived in Kansas during the primary and then they moved to Arkansas and voted in that general election. We don't know. But again, none of it has anything to do with citizens voting, with non-citizens voting. It all has to do with double voting, uh, which this proof of citizenship would do nothing about. Uh, nor would the photo ID restrictions that Chris Kobach has put in place for the polling place, they wouldn't have stopped this type of voting either. For example, if you vote uh, by absentee in Colorado and then you show up at the polls with a photo ID or without a photo ID, it's not going to stop that double voting. Uh, this is going on in the light of day in Kansas. I know we're going to talk about this more because what Chris Kobach is doing is absolutely outrageous. But the Republican Party is now looking to Chris Kobach for methods and ideas and schemes to keep uh, largely Democratic voters from being able to cast their vote. And by the way, those three indictments that Chris Kobach, with his new prosecutorial powers, has brought, they were all against Republicans. What? I thought it was a Democratic voter fraud epidemic that they had warned us about. Apparently not. Man. All right. Uh, we will have more on this in the days and months <laughs> and years, I suspect, ahead. Take a quick break. And we are back with our sea change. Green News Report. Lots of good news in the Green News Report. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. Stay tuned. <laughs> 
Melting for you here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com here with Desi Doyen. Um, and it, uh, uh, boy, it's just a big, a big day overall. But every single story in our Green News report coming up momentarily is huge. I know. It's awesome. I love it. Uh, we, of course, we recorded this prior to our conversation moments ago with Alex Dukas. Uh, so in regard to Canada, I'll refer you back to our earlier segment, uh, even though we talk about what happened in Canada last night on our latest Green News report. We now know there will be no more drilling in the Arctic during the Obama presidency. This one's done. Obama administration shuts down Arctic oil drilling. This is beyond hypocrisy. I'm not even sure what to call it. Accountability may be coming for Exxon's climate deception. The time, I think, has come to move to a new generation of technology. Big changes ahead for the auto industry. Plus, conservatives out, liberals in, in Canada. So what about that whole Keystone XL pipeline thing? Yeah, what about it? All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comments. We'll be fine with the environment. We can leave a little bit, but you can't destroy businesses. Okay, well, thank you for leaving a little bit of the environment, Donald Trump. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a lot of, uh, frankly, really huge stories today. We have just learned that the liberals have taken over the Canadian government, throwing out the Conservative Party and Prime Minister Stephen Harper. This could have a huge effect on the Keystone XL pipeline and the Energy East pipeline, both controversial and set to ship dirty tar sands oil from Alberta all over the place. Uh, I guess it remains to be seen now what will happen with the new liberal government in charge up in Canada. Yeah, we should hopefully have more on that in our next episode, but it very possibly could put an end to the nearly 10-year pro-oil agenda of the Harper administration. Yes, underline the word possibly, given that uh, just days ago, the co-chair for the Justin Trudeau campaign, he's the head of the liberals, had to resign because of his ties to TransCanada and the oil industry. So uh, a lot of questions, but uh, an encouraging sign, perhaps, at least that Harper is gone. All right. What other earth-shaking news do you have for us today, Desi Doyen? <laughs> well, accountability may be coming for Exxon. We've been telling you about the blockbuster investigation revealing that Exxon executives knew about the dangers of burning fossil fuels in causing global warming as early as 1977, but Exxon copied the tobacco industry and spent millions of dollars funding front groups to deceive the public and policymakers about the scientific evidence. Now, Congressman Ted Lieu and Mark DeSaulnier, both Democrats, Democrats from California have asked the U.S. Justice Department to investigate Exxon in the same way the Justice Department investigated and successfully convicted Big Tobacco on racketeering charges 10 years ago for conspiring to deceive the public. Congressman Liu explained on the broadcast that it isn't just that Exxon remained silent on what they knew. They were taking affirmative steps both in what they said, who they funded, and actions they took to push back against climate change science. And keep in mind, they internally took actions to take advantage of global warming. So 
this is beyond hypocrisy. I'm not even sure what to call it. What the congressman was referring to there was the fact that not only did Exxon know, but they tried to take advantage of the fact that the Arctic would be melting and, hey, makes it easier to drill up there in the Arctic without all of that ice. Speaking of the Arctic, another setback for big oil in the Arctic. On Friday, the Interior Department announced that it has halted all auctions of leases to drill for oil and gas in the U.S. waters off the coast of Alaska due to the lack of interest from the oil industry due to slumping global oil prices. Interior Department also announced it will not renew or extend any existing leases in the Arctic, and that includes leases held by Shell oil, which abandoned its efforts in the Arctic last month after getting disappointing results. And after getting approval from the Obama administration to do it in the first place, I am glad they have flip-flopped now, so to speak. So good for them. About time. Meanwhile, a big shift underway in the auto industry. After automaker Volkswagen was caught red-handed cheating on U.S. emissions tests, Tesla CEO Elon Musk suggested this may signal the end of the internal combustion engine. What the uh, Volkswagen is really showing is that we've reached the limit of what's possible uh, with diesel and gasoline. It appears Volkswagen agrees. VW executives have announced, quote, the future is electric. And in a statement, they say they will now focus their product range and core technologies on building long range, all electric and plug in hybrid cars across all of their brands. And it's not just Volkswagen. Swedish automaker Volvo is also going electric, saying, quote, we believe the time has come for electric vehicles. Volvo announced it will offer plug-ins or hybrid versions of every model it sells within four years. And that comes on the heels of BMW saying that every single car they make will be electric in some form or another over the next 10 years. Plus, Japanese automaker Toyota says it will make virtually all gasoline engines from its product line extinct by 2050, focusing on hybrids and electrics and hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Nothing but good news today. For more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyan, for all of that good news in a row. It's so unlike you. <laughs> Do my best. Uh, thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn. Also to my guest today, Alex Dukas of Oil Change International. Get more information at priceofoil.org. If you missed any portion of today's program, go download it at bradblog.com or over at iTunes, where we hope you will give us a good review. We deserve it. Also, uh, you can drop me email anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. Find me and follow me on the Twitters at the Brad Blog. All right, I think that's it. Until we see you next time, my thanks to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs>